17, take four. Mark. Action. Well, hello, college. Motherfucker! Come on, everybody, eyes on me! Any other faggots? I'm sorry, you're alternating the pitch of your voice too much. I just... Lloyd, 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 I listen to my fucking director, not the fucking sound guy. Who the fuck? Mr. Wallach, so happy you're joining us. Come on. Hey, everybody. I'm Joel Murphy. And I'm Andy McIntyre. And this is Silver Linings Playback, the podcast where we watch maligned movies and we find their silver linings. And we're almost done baiting Oscar. Yeah, we've done it. We spent a month doing it. Just and, baiting that guy. And Oscar's been edging. <laughs> He's been been so baited. Uh, which feels like the right metaphor to discuss this week's film. Yeah. Uh, we watched Damien Chazelle's Babylon. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's Damien Chazelle's. He owns it. He can't deny responsibility for it. This is no Alan Smithy film. It is Damien Chazelle's Babylon. Yes. Which... To me is quintessential for this month because you have Damien Chazelle who uh, has won. Uh, he won, right? I mean, the, the, the whole debacle with Best Picture. But he won I th- Best Director that year, I'm pretty sure. But he, yeah, I think he won Best Director. but like, Best Screenplay, maybe? Yeah, and Best Moment Ever at the Oscars where they said his movie name and then had to take it back, which well, is and, still and the best. And you could argue that that would make uh, La La Land the ultimate Oscar bait and switch. That's true. But yeah, so, you, so Chazelle is involved and then obviously you have uh, Margot Robbie, who's been very popular this month in failed Oscar bait films. She uh, has. You got Brad Pitt, who's certainly been around the old Oscar movies. You know, he's gotten a couple of noms for acting. His record as a producer significantly better. Yeah. Well, didn't he produce Moonlight? I think he produced the film that beat. Uh, I think he did. La La um, I mean, he definitely produced uh, 12 Years a Slave and one for that. Yes. No, he's he is a pretty prolific and impressive, uh, like his production company, for sure. Yeah, Plan B. Yeah. They do good work. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so you got a lot, of, a lot of heavy hitters in this movie. It's a movie about movies, which Hollywood loves so much. Dude. Yeah, this like you you could feel the Oscars, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, just really wanting to give this movie a ton of nods, but it's not that good. No. Well, and I think this is my theory. You tell me what you think. It is for sure a love letter to movies, but I think what probably kept them from nominating it is... The piss scene? Well, (laughs) I was going to say in general how cynical it is and how filthy and disgusting it makes Hollywood look. I think because it is not it doesn't portray early Hollywood in the way that it is normally portrayed that probably kept it from Yeah, I think the fact that it portrays pre-golden age Hollywood as just a den of iniquity. Yes. Yeah, it's pre-code in all the ways. Yeah, <laughs> like pretty it's, much. Um Yeah, I like yeah, this movie goes for it, man. Like it is Caligula levels of debauchery in this film. Yeah, and it wasn't even made by like a hustler producer. No. 
Malcolm McDowell nowhere to be found. No, they called him and he was like, I'm not falling for that again. <laughs> Fool me once, Hollywood. Shame on you. <laughs> this Fool time, me twice. I've read the script. And I will. I don't care how naked Helen Mirren is. <laughs> no one has ever said that sentence. No, except for Malcolm McDowell. Yeah. Because he, he didn't, didn't want to fall for it again. Yeah, that's true. But well, he was I mean, lying because he did care how naked Helen Mirren was. Yeah, but you can forgive him because once you tape someone's eyeballs open and force them to watch horrible things, it desensitizes them to all sorts of things. Yeah, this movie had a little bit of the Ludovico treatment feel to it at <laughs> times. So I'm not gonna, not going to lie. It did. Yeah, it did. And it's too long. And it, just while we're just oh my saying God, it's too long. things at the beginning, it's way too long. Uh, but yeah, I don't even know. I mean, well, okay. I think a good place to start is you texted the me. The piss scene? Well, we're going to talk about the piss scene. <laughs> but to set up the movie, you texted me a description of it that I think is perfect if you want to share that with the <laughs> sure. audience. Sure. Uh, this movie is like if someone remade Singing in the Rain, but high on mescaline. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's that's what it is. It's about the transition from uh, silent films to talkies. And it's insane. Well, and if you didn't, here's the funny thing. You text me that before I had watched it. And and don't worry if you didn't get that they were doing singing in the rain. Oh, my friend. <laughs> They're going to show you literal friggin singing in the rain. They drive that point home with a sledgehammer in the last reel, which we we need to talk about the well, the that's, last that's hour, one of the, but we'll get there. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the biggest maligning because there's a lot about, especially the last. God, I don't know that I've seen a more derivative last twenty five minutes on screen than the last twenty five minutes of this movie. But yeah, I think I I told you I think the last hour didn't work for me. That I I would actually clock it as I think I enjoyed more of the first two hours than i didn't enjoy but that third hour i disliked oh, most of i'm i'm 100 with you i'm just saying specifically the end of the movie simultaneously is derivative of singing in the rain 2001 and cinema paradiso oh yeah yeah and, and it's just straight rip off of those three movies well also showing clips of some of those all movies of those movies yeah i was trying to remember if they were all in there but yeah uh i don't know if cinema 2001 paradiso. definitely a cinema paradiso might, might not, not be. be yeah but the but for sure singing but in the that, rain yeah but that whole scene is the kiss montage at the end of cinema paradiso yes yeah for sure yeah it's, i mean but it's it, not as good also i mean it does have the distinction of, of besides all these other movies that we're talking about it's the only one to show a clip from avatar <laughs> yeah it sure did avatar <laughs> the, the, that the, happened that's a thing that happened the magic of the movies avatar now i will never defend avatar as a good movie but I, I i have a soft spot for it i'm not ready for it to be in these movie montages by the way i i have a question for you too so again do, we've skipped to the end and we're going to go back to the beginning in a second but since we're talking about this final scene uh, and it is, it's just a montage of clips from great movies. I, you have to imagine, at least at some point in the editing process, Giselle put a clip from La La Land, right? Oh, that's for sure in there somewhere. Yeah. And then like maybe someone made him take it out or maybe it's still there and it's hidden. But you know, you know, that clip of Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone dancing was for sure just, he's probably, probably just put it in there and didn't tell anyone. 
Just like let's see, let's see if they let's see if they mention it, and then everyone I was would like, "Bet that it's one of like the the uh, borderline stock footage shots of the LA freeways." That yeah, he snuck in. <laughs> it's just in something there. something that you wouldn't know off to, off top as La La Land, like not like a, the cities of City of Stars scene or Ryan Gosling saving jazz the way only Ryan Gosling can. He did save jazz. He did save jazz. Yeah. Uh, all right, but yeah. So let's go back to the beginning because it's worth. I think spending some time talking about the opening party scene and you, I mean, if if you want to talk about a pre credit scene for the ages. Yeah. So the movie opens for those of you who are listening and haven't seen it with, they're trying to get an elephant to this big, uh, just absolute Sodom and Gomorrah esque Hollywood party. It may or may not be, uh, the titty twister from, from dust till dawn. Yeah, it's just this absolute din of inequity that they're throwing a party at, and they're trying to get an elephant there to show up, and uh, they don't have the they don't have the horsepower to move the elephant. Well, and literally because the guy who's transporting it, he has a horse trailer because he didn't know it was going to be an elephant, and they're trying to get it up a hill, and two guys are helping push the the truck, and an elephant shits all over them graphically. Yeah, it does. For uh, and however long you're and thinking, the movie's all downhill from there, baby. Yeah, however long you're thinking that goes, it goes five minutes longer. Yeah, um, that always brings me to one thing that like I don't think I enjoy it as a trope in filmmaking when elephants shit all over people. It just happens too much. Operation Dumbo Drop is a whole movie about that. I assume <laughs> haven't seen it. Yeah, the original um, animated Dumbo had that scene where Dumbo was flying around just dropping deuces on people's heads. <laughs> just raining down tire, <laughs> raining down Chipotle shit all over everybody. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't know. I feel like it takes me out of the movie whenever something's like splatters on the camera lens yeah well it's yeah it's a dumb thing you can do that if it's a documentary or if it's something that's supposed to mean uh like to be shot like that you're acknowledging that the cameras exist but yeah what does it mean in a movie where we're not supposed to notice the cameras for something to get on the lens of the camera right And, and granted like if you're doing like a very clear first person shot i think it can work to a to a point but yeah they weren't but no, it's just the camera was there. Fake elephant shit got on the camera, which I assume was melted butterfingers. Like that's it gave that vibe to me. Yeah. Which I, I mean, I guess on a broader point too, um, every bodily fluid that you can think of is in this movie at some point. Uh, there's yeah. a there's an extended vomit scene. There's a guy that's definitely meant to be Fatty Arbuckle. That's uh, definitely getting pissed on by a sex worker. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just want to say, like, as a general maligning of this movie, that one of the biggest things is there's a lot of things that I did like about that when we get to the silver linings. But I think a thing just fundamentally that I didn't enjoy that I think these all speak to is the comedy in this movie did not work for me. No, like. It it wasn't funny. No, all of those things were meant to be funny. And it's weird because they're all the type of comedy that you would have found in like a late 90s, early 2000s, like teen movie 
where like it's a, like a Farrelly Brothers movie. For sure a Farrelly Brothers movie. And that like again the scene where Margot Robbie is vomiting, it is like clearly a fire hose was taped to the side of her face to just yeah. shoot out, you know, more vomit than a human being would have in their stomach onto a carpet. Yeah, it it was it was over the top like it was Yeah, it was just ridiculous. Which is, it's just, I mean, it's a funny thing, and it's it's truly strange that one of the Best Picture nominees this year, Triangle of Sadness, actually has people vomiting in it, but contextually it makes sense because it's on a cruise ship that's crashing, and it's meant to be upsetting. And so, like, I do understand, there is a place for vomit in a prestige-like Oscar film, is what I'm saying, I guess, but... When you watch Babylon, clearly the the vibe of these things, they're meant to shock you and they're meant to be funny. And I don't think either of those are really in place with what the rest of the film is trying to do. Well, and, and that's the thing, like there are filmmakers like John Waters that use the grotesque to effect and it's shock and awe and it's meant to elicit a response. But there's a deft touch. That's just not present in this movie. Yeah. And and it's way over the top in a way that I, I don't know what it was meant to accomplish, except yeah. probably and, getting. And a yes. Few, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say probably getting a few of those Oscar voters to rip up that ballot right in the middle of this movie. <laughs> yeah. And and just like and bear in mind that I am describing John Waters filming Divine eating a shit. As a deft touch compared to some of the attempts at grotesque in this movie. Which one, I don't think you're wrong. And two, contextually fit better in that movie than anything that happens in this film fits in this film. Yeah, no, 100%. R.I.P. Um, Divine. <laughs> R.I.P. Divine, yes. Uh, yeah, this movie is... I think the another thing I sent to you is that there's like 90 minutes of really good filmmaking in this movie, and it's a three-hour movie. Yeah, no, for sure. Like, like I said, there there are things I don't even know that I disliked this movie. I might, it might have actually tipped the scale just into liked it more than disliked, but it's definitely close to even. Yeah, it's it's tough to put this movie on that binary of liked or disliked because. I did really enjoy the bit up until the title card, like the debauchery scene in the like it was that was more well executed, even with like the fatty Arbuckle stand in. And but like introducing like your main character, Manny, and you get uh, Margot Robbie coming in like a tornado and mountains of cocaine. And there's the the song. um, my girlfriend's pussy by in the movie and you know there's just like it's wild which is a real song from the time which i mean maybe speaks to just everything in this movie is sung with like because there's a bit if you go and listen to old music where there was always sort of like a wink and a nod you know there's a lot of songs that have fallen into this category of like my ding-a-ling or you know it's like there's a myth that songs are more graphic now, but the truth is that you can just be more openly explicit. But there were an entire, you know, just ca- like just huge catalog of songs that are using double entendres to be explicit. And uh, My Girlfriend's Pussy is one of them. But like if you ever hear and you actually hear a snippet of it in this movie, the original, it's like sort of 
kind of plain. There's a non yeah in the movie there's a non-zero chance he's singing about a cat right and that's that's sort of the area that these songs tend to uh, uh you know exist in my dingling you're gonna hear uh, it's like kind of alluding to it's a bell i'm just talking about a bell i want a girl to play with my bell and it's we all know what you're doing but there's like again i think to your point earlier a sort of craft and attacked to doing it and then in this song it's like I am literally talking about uh, female genitalia, and I'm going to make that clear in the way I'm singing it, in every mannerism and gesture that I do. This is not any sort of tease. This is a promise. Yeah, there, there's no hint of subtlety. Yeah. Um, this movie, and like, I think this movie, the one thing this movie does sort of well, and I don't think this is a silver lining yet, is that a lot of silent films were just smut. Oh, yeah. No, I. And that I, gets forgotten about. Well, Everyone remembers like a trip to the moon and Nosferatu and all the Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and all the greats. But 95% of the movies of the silent films that were made were smut. Or yeah. Porn. Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense. We, you know, as as a country and as a world, we had just gotten access to these cameras and humans did what humans always do. It's the same thing people do when they get iPhones. It's the same thing they did when they got still cameras. It's the same thing they did when they learned that they could draw pictures on the sides of caves. You want naked people. And, you know, that's important to be remembered. I yeah. Think. And yeah, I mean, well, and it's really funny because a movie that I did really love that uh, Molly and I, if you've listened to maybe some of the other podcasts that I do, uh, both really advocated for uh, that didn't obviously get any awards recognition because it's uh, horror was the movie Pearl, which I think did a really good job of there's a scene where the projectionist takes Pearl up there after hours and is like hey i have a movie to show you and it's like one of those silent film you know nudies and and she famously uh which has been much quoted in my house goes is that legal <laughs> but uh but yeah i mean that was a big part of it and and it is nice that they're acknowledging that and sort of pain and, and i do think that the i think overall push back on how much we've sanitized early Hollywood and acknowledging no people died on set. There was a lot of debauchery. There was a lot of just nudity and sex and cocaine and bad behavior. And it was all swept under the rug by the studios is I think a worthy endeavor for a film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think, I think that that sort of bringing that to light is important. Uh, but I also think that, it has to come from a place of love that this movie doesn't feel like it's coming from. Yeah, no. And again, like, I think a lot of it is that this movie feels like it's doing it for shock value instead of to enhance the story. And in, in a weird way, part of me wonders if this is an overcorrection from La La Land. Like, I almost wonder if Damien Chazelle read some of the feedback on La La Land and, and kind of got a vibe because that was very much a movie that was... One, also heavily ins inspired by Singing in the Rain, but very much glamorized Hollywood and treated it as this magical, perfect land. And I wonder if in trying to get away from that, the pendulum went way too far the other way. Yeah. It, La La Land is about as sanitary and safe a movie as I can think of. Like, it's just 
it is it's laying down a bunt to yeah. advance the like it's it's not you know it's not this movie is a swing and a miss i think to keep with baseball analogies but but, but it's a, it's a babe ruth swing and a miss someone pointed to the someone, back yes, of the, <laughs> someone tried to call their shot and yeah. whiffed <laughs> yeah but uh but yeah i mean la la land ends with emma stone's character going in for an audition for a movie where they tell her you know what? We don't even know what the movie is going to be. We'll just base it on your life. A thing that does not happen in Hollywood. That's just like, no. you're so interesting. The movie's you. You know, <laughs> like that's, that's the end of La La Land. We're like, this movie is just like, we all die alone <laughs> and it's sad and it's horrible. And the only thing that's ever going to matter is if you get captured in celluloid and someone remembers you, I think is essentially what Gene Smart tells Brad Pitt is some version. I think of that's that. a word for word quote. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a much darker take. Uh, but yeah, it's just I think we've kind of hit. I don't know if we want to focus in on anything closer, but we have kind of had the broad strokes. Like I said, the gross out stuff, I don't think really worked. It's too long. Uh, there's I, the I last hour, the Ugh. last hour is rough and, and also kind of has that. Cause even the stuff with Toby Maguire, I think is meant to be really shocking, but everything in the movie has been at a 10. So I kind of had that where I'm like, I mean, sure there's an alligator now, but this doesn't feel inherently more dangerous or crazy than what we've seen. Well, yeah. When, when you start with an elephant shitting over people for way too long and then have a 26 minute orgy yeah basically yeah um there's not a lot of room to heighten you know joel and i coming from the world of improv you got to start somewhere so you have room to heighten yeah yeah i I sometimes run out of space and this movie did before the title card yeah i don't know that inherently the end felt more shocking than any other (laughs) particular scene well, yeah, and like there was there was a stab at pathos with Manny, now older, wiser, family man, goes to see Singing in the Rain at the Nickelodeon. And after his wife and his kid could not care less. Yeah. They're just like, uh, whatever. We we have like also, I mean, I get maybe I guess that he's traumatized, but like he hasn't watched a movie in 20 years. <laughs> this guy loved movies and is just like, nope. I made it out out and I'm done. You know what? Now I can now I can give that movie a try again. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like it's and then it's literally almost shot for shot. The end of Cinema Paradiso, except with every Hollywood movie he could get rights to show four seconds of. But also, I do want to take one step back on the ending because. I, I, I don't want to get past all this without talking about this of one of my least favorite tropes in movies. And it happens way too often is, hey, this movie that we've been in this whole time is so interesting. We should turn it into a movie or like we should write a book about our life that this book is that just like very lazy. Yes, I believe they call that clerks threeing. Yes, it's called clerks three. It's called the end of games of thrones in you know (laughs) it's called it's it's the end of crazy ex-girlfriend it's it happens way too often and it i hate it every time because first of all it's just such a lazy wink to the audience but also yeah 
of course, whatever the thing you just have experienced would make a good TV show because it's you a, made TV it into show. a TV show. It's already a TV show. It's not real life. And I hate it every time. But this was a twist on it that I still really hated, which was so again, Damien Chazelle is obviously hugely influenced by Singing in the Rain. The, his last two movies have been two very different takes on his version of Singing in the Rain, essentially. Uh, the first one being, what if we did it, but the people can't dance real good? And that one uh, lost best picture. And then the second one is, what if we did it, but an elephant shits on everyone, which I do think is a better pitch. But uh, <laughs> what if we did it high on mescaline? <laughs> what if we did it high on mescaline? And I do think he went insane, by the way. I think you're onto something because I, I know that there's a story that he filmed the first version of this movie was like a two hour version that he shot in his backyard on his iPhone. So yeah, I think it was he just, just went him, his wife and Manny Torres, which I think he just went crazy during COVID. I, I think he did. I think he lost it a little bit and I kind of love him for it. But and he uh, th- I, I want to see like. I would love to see that movie as a DVD extra. I would 100% watch that movie if it if we could. Because um, I think he even said, I think I, I think that version's better. Yeah, I bet it is. Um, because look, when Damien Chazelle plays the elephant, he does it with a lot of gravitas. Uh, no, but so he's very influenced by Singing in the Rain. It's obviously, you know, this big... Uh, It bleeds into his work. So to do an entire movie that takes the exact subject matter of Singing in the Rain, which is all based on real old Hollywood, and to make your own version of it, but then to have one of your characters go into a movie theater and watch Singing in the Rain and then go like, oh, this reminds me of the people that I knew. (laughs) Yeah, I bet it does, buddy, because the people that you knew were based on this movie. Yeah, it's a weird Ouroboros of, I don't know, movies. I, just, I very much did not like it. No, I did not like that aspect of it. And and then it goes into the thing that you've talked about where it's just like, so first of all, you're just acknowledging how derivative the plot is from Singing in the Rain. And then you're just going to be more derivative by taking the end of Cinema Paradisio and doing it yourself again. Yeah, it's... Uh... But that being said, go watch both Singing in the Rain and Cinema Paradiso because they are wonderful movie going experiences. Look, Singing in the Rain is one of the greatest movies ever made. And full stop. And straight up, if you're having a rough day, if you're having an okay day and you pop that in, you it is impossible not to just love that movie and be energized and excited by it. It's a real fun journey it's for so, sure it's so good it really is it's great it's very charming it's very energetic um it it's it's great there's a blackface scene i'm just gonna warn you of that that's bad and it's yes. upsetting and uh but there's one in this movie too so and it's bad and it's upsetting yeah and i i understood why there was one in this movie and I understood what it was hinting, hinting at, but I also don't think that storyline was given enough room to breathe for that to work. Well, yeah, this movie did not, again, have the deft touch or the subtlety to explore any number of the exploitive things that have happened under the banner of Hollywood. Yeah, well, and I think that that maybe is my biggest problem with the movie is it. 
sort of shines a light at a lot of the grime and gross and debaucherous and horrible things in Hollywood. But I don't know that it really has ultimately anything to say about it, especially since the ending is like movies are magic. Yes, like, well, despite all this terribleness, movies are magic. Brought to you by Harvey Weinstein. Ooh, yeah. I mean, it's not that far off from this movie's message. <laughs> I mean, they did a whole bit in uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm where people were mistaking Jeff Garland for Harvey Weinstein, so. And he did play a Harvey Weinstein type in this movie. But that's what I mean, is like, Mr. Maybe, Wallach. That, maybe that casting was not accidental. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I'm probably ready to pivot if you yeah, are. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, that Jeff Garland is a place to start because this movie's cast is phenomenal. It is. And yeah, I mean, I'm always happy to see Jeff Garland. Yeah, he's great. He wasn't. I don't, I don't think he was angry enough in this movie. No. Although he's, you know, he's had, had a rough patch recently with the Goldbergs and all. But yeah. Yeah, I'm not really sure what to make of that. Like, it definitely sounds like he was uh, not fun to work with on that yeah. show. But neither here nor there. Um, Margot Robbie is awesome in this movie. Margot Robbie is unequivocally the best part of this movie. Yeah, it's not close. She, like, you'd think she was giving too much, but considering everything that's happening around her, it's like subtle. It seems subtle and nuanced relative to a lot of the other nonsense that's happening. Yes. And the energy that she brings to the movie is much needed. And I, I kind of feel like maybe that's why the third act flounders so much is it's because it's when she's on the skids, when her career is really crashing that. Yeah. She doesn't have her manic, chaotic energy that she's bringing to everything, which I think drives a lot of the story. Well, yeah. And like, I mean, we mentioned it earlier, but she literally rolls into that opening sequence like a goddamn tornado in this ridiculous red dress that is barely there. And then she's just doing a mountain of cocaine. Yeah. And it's insane. <laughs> Well, there, there's a great reveal later, too, with Jeff Garland, where they go back to the parties after she's actually been in a movie and she's like she's writing something and she's snorting cocaine and they're asking where Nellie is. And he's like, oh, she's there, <laughs> you know, like, uh, but no, it's it's a great intro to the character. You know, everything you need to know about her. And she does get discovered at the party. Uh, I will say. My two favorite, well, I think the party scene is great and maybe we should talk about it more in detail too. But while we're staying on Margot Robbie, besides that, my two favorite scenes in the movie are her two scenes on a set. And I think they actually are, I think the best that this movie does with whatever thesis it has and whatever singing in the rain on mescaline uh, story that it's telling is you get the first scene where again she's discovered at the party they send her in place of I believe if I remember correctly it's actually the woman that dies from Fatty Arbuckle it was right, supposed to film is, yeah. and they say because she dies they need someone to fill in they send Margot Robbie and she's gonna be in this silent film it's in a bar 
and she comes in and sort of dances on the table and flirts with all the guys and is just herself, essentially. She does what she was doing at the party, but in a movie. And uh, she's being filmed by a director who I believe isn't that that is Damien Chazelle's wife, right? Yeah. Olivia Hamilton, Damien Chazelle's wife. Yeah. So she's playing the director and, you know, it's Margot Robbie. At first, she's not sure about her, but then she's really charming. And then there's a part where she needs to cry and she can clearly cry on command. She can control the amount of tears. She can control the the speed, everything. She's just super fantastic to work with. She clearly steals the scene from the other actress she's this is her star turn it's great you totally get it she's a wild free spirit who's just allowed to do her own thing and nails it and then you get that book ended with the scene where now sound has come in and she's on a sound stage and that's what we played the clip from at the beginning where you take this person who is naturally charismatic and talented and put them in a situation where it's under hot lights. You're not outside anymore. There's a very specific mark that you have to hit. There's microphones that you have to speak at a certain level. There's a door because it's a sound stage that if it opens, too much light gets in and it ruins the shot. There's all these external things that are now adding artifice and putting her in her head so that she is no longer allowed to be as charismatic and free spirited as she has. She has to think about everything too much. And it doesn't play to her strengths. And I thought both of those scenes in their own right, I really liked. And I think that they capture what I believe Damien Chazelle was trying to capture of like, this is a person who thrived during the silent era because of their natural talent, who was put in a situation that actually, while you wouldn't think like, oh, they added sound, it's not that different. It is so different that she can't act well anymore. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, and that... That whole dichotomy is the really great thing. And that's the singing in the rain bit, because that's literally what happens in that movie. Well, they showed the clip of singing in the rain of the character that she's based on. (laughs) Right. But like her rivalry with Samara Weaving's character is so good. And just them being two opposite ends of the spectrum of like ingenues. And it's yeah, like Margot Robbie is always a pleasure like she's always a silver line she's she's the best part of everything i think i've seen her yeah no i that's definitely true i also think when you say there's a 90 minute there's 90 minutes of content that's great i think that might have been a movie about her character i think honestly if you cut a lot of the other stuff and you just did a movie about her with obviously her relationship with manny in there as well but i mean I like Brad Pitt, but I I guess I'm kind of saying if you cut all the Brad Pitt stuff, which I didn't think worked as well. It was fine, but Brad Pitt play did a better job playing in a self-destructive aging Hollywood performer in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, I just and that movie sucked. Right. And like I, I like Brad Pitt, but I don't think he was given a lot to work with. He was just sort of a pastiche of cliches about a hollywood train wreck more than a human yeah um and he has some some really good scenes like when he's trying to explain that this woman is his wife and margot robbie's making out with him like that was wonderful yeah um i thought like uh the scene where he ends up committing suicide was really well shot i also i liked the moment where he sees the the employee 
and he asks him what the biggest tip that he ever got. And he tells him and he says, who gave it to you? And he says, you did. And then he gives him clearly more money. I, I liked that bit like that. Yeah. You know, as as it's very clear that that's the last human being he's going to interact with before he goes upstairs and takes his own life. But yeah. Yeah. Like I, I there's good stuff that he does, but I just think I, I guess I'm just saying the Margot Robbie storyline to me was much more successful than his storyline. Well, yeah, Margot Robbie is a lot more interesting. I really liked uh, Manny as well, but Margot Robbie's story is the is the story of this movie. Well, I also I, I thought Manny's rise was really interesting, but then I thought once he got to the top, they they floundered with him a bit as well. They weren't really sure what to do with that. And again, they the end bit where we're in the 1950s with him, we could have done without. Yeah. Um, the only bit I liked from towards the end of the movie is uh, that the uh, the obituary for Margot Robbie's character was b- like a below the fold tucked in the back corner of the newspaper. That's one of the best newspaper on screen bits, which is super cliched. But I thought that was well done. I thought that was well done, too. I did kind of enjoy as well that she literally the last time we see her on screen she disappears into the night that she just climbs out of the car and just walks off like i i actually liked i did her too, yeah. final shot a lot too yeah um yeah I, I would i would agree wholeheartedly that that was yeah margot robbie is definitely one of the best actresses working today like she's always interesting. She makes choices. She takes chances. She does like really fun stuff on screen. No, she's she's a delight. I can see why every uh, every auteur male director, uh, you know, really rushes. Yeah. Crazy that an absolutely stunning, gorgeous blonde gets whatever job she wants. It's a new thing that directors are yeah, trying. They're trying it, trying yeah. it out. By the See way, how it goes. Well, we're giving shout outs to just the cast in the movie. And I'll, there's a lot of. Big name people that I did really enjoy and obviously always happy to see Gene Smart. But I want to specifically spotlight. It gave me so much joy to see Rory Scovel in this movie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Who you have to be sort of uh, us. You have to be into comedy. And you like... have to be someone that's connected to the DC improv scene a little bit. And <laughs> <Yeah>. then. <laughs> yes. It's a very niche. Yeah. Like local thing. But yeah, Rory Scoville is sort of uh, a local to the, you know, DMV area boy done well, who yeah. is very prominently featured in this movie and is very good. He is the guy who gives the counterfeit money to Manny and yeah. has. Like, so that's the thing. Even though I didn't love the third hour, it did make me happy that he was there for the and journey. He was, he was the only thing that was catching my eye in the third hour as I was fighting off the nods from how dull it was for most of it. Which, and I, he made a meal of the whole, um, you know, when Manny's asking him, where'd the money come from? And it's like, well, I got it from the prop guy. What, like his salary? No, it, it's props. He made props. So what did you think I was going to get $80,000 from? It's prop money. <laughs> like that's it's fake. That I actually like the way he played that cracked me up so much. Like he he's a delight and I enjoy him every time he shows up on my screen, including he has a great run in Superstore dating Dina as well. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's delightful. Um Yeah, and like Jean Smart again, always a pleasure to see her. Yeah, she's not. Uh, she's. I wouldn't say she's underused in this, but she's she's not very prominent in this. Like she has a 
important role, but I don't know that she has a ton of screen time. Yeah, like, it's not one of those things where, like, they wasted the use of such a talented uh, performer as they... That's a lot of times one of the maligning things that we'll hit a movie for, but I I don't think that's the case here as much. Um, I actually think they overcast the part, if I'm really being honest, in that, like, Gene Smart is amazing and capable of more, but you, you gave her a good role, but, you know, not a starring role. Right. Yeah, no, 100% with that. Yeah, this is, uh, this month was challenging, my friend. Yeah, it, I just, there's something interesting, like, I think if I'm being totally honest, I appreciate a ridiculous movie that doesn't have ambitions. You know, the types of movies that we watch, a lot of them have Nicolas Cage in them, where it's just, I don't know, we want, yeah. Here's a weird idea we had. We're making the weird movie to the best of our ability with the money that we were able to secure. And we want to make this weird, weird action or sci-fi or whatever movie. We're going to have a Velocipaster. Yeah, there's going to be a pastor. He turns into a dinosaur. Like those types of movies, I think, have a special place in my heart. And it's there's something about the type of movie that we watched this month where it, again... I'm sure that the people making them had, you know, like, like clearly, like I said, Damien Chazelle loves singing in the rain. He's trying to do homages to that. And I think all of that is true. But this the Academy Award industrial complex and the people who seek to make movies that they believe is what the Academy wants is somehow more exhausting to me than watching bad movies. Yeah, like that. All of these movies that we watched this month are made by people that won Academy Awards. Right. Yeah. It's it's an all you know. Ridley Scott, Damien Chazelle, um, David O. Russell, like they're all, and Clint Eastwood have all won directing Oscars. Yeah, and they can't take them back once you get one. Doesn't matter what you follow anything up with. (laughs) Uh, That De Niro is still. Uh, an Oscar winner, regardless of Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> I'd Al say Pacino's because of. Sti- you could argue. Yeah. You know, uh, like they don't take. You know, they don't take him away. No, they can't. Uh, I will say, as we wrap up, maybe the biggest silver lining to this month that we couldn't have anticipated when we went into it is as we've been recording this and as this month has unfolded, everything everywhere all at once won all the academy awards yes it won basically everything that it was up for and if there has perhaps never been a less awards bait movie to win best picture like you can even if you did not like that movie even if it was not your cup of tea you have to admit that that was not a film that was made because they thought it would win academy awards no that movie was not made to try to get an Oscar. That movie was made because the Daniels had a weird and fun idea. They had just enough cachet from making uh, Swiss Army Man to get a p- relatively well-known cast. And they had enough people to buy in. And Which, to be clear, they parlayed their farting corpse movie that starred uh, the bloated corpse of Harry Potter into <laughs> making everything everywhere. They parlayed that and the... Turn down for what video that they had yes. shot into making 
uh, one of the most awarded. The like, first Academy movie to Award. win six above the line awards ever. <laughs> yeah. Like it's I, I think that that should make people happy. But I also to the point of this month should perhaps make Hollywood take notice that you can still win Academy Awards and do something original and fun and make the best movie that you want to make. Right. Instead you, of what you think they want to do. Kings don't always need to be given speeches. No. Books don't always have to be green. No. And Kate Winslet's don't always have to be readers. Silver Linings Playback is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. We have to ask. It's a podcast where we answer the question, are you going to eat that? What will you leave behind? Why get out of bed? Will you be our neighbor? I'm Marty. And I'm Jonathan. We're two hosts. Infinite Universes. We, we have, have to ask. ask. New interviews every Tuesday. Find us on iTunes or online at wehavetoask.com or with the other great podcasts on the Peak Sloth Network at peaksloth.com. Peaksloth.com.